Lord, as we consider these difficult words and lamentations, our hearts are burdened by the waywardness of our culture and world. We pray that we would look upon our culture and world as you do. That we would see the sins of the nations, the sins of our nation, even the sins of our own hearts, the way in which you see and understand sin. May we hate it. May we lament over it. May it cause us to flee sin and run to you. We pray this in the name of our Redeemer, the one who has moved us from death to life, from enemy to friend, the Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, Lamentations 2 doesn't really make for any easier reading than Lamentations 1. Um, you, you notice again that it's 23 verses, the same as, or 22 verses, I apologize, the same as, as chapter 1, um, and, and, it, and it fits the same acrostic formula, where the first letter of the first verse is Aleph or A, the second, le- the, the, the second verse begins with B, the third verse, and you know, so on, down through the alphabet. And, and the scope of it is to say, the destruction is complete. The scope of it is to say that the destruction of the nation is total. In fact, as we think about it, and as, again I say it's difficult, it makes you want to not read. It makes you want to put it down. But at the same time we see that, that Jeremiah, who I, I think is, has written Lamentations, he won't let us stop. Let, let me give you an example of this. It's, it's just right here at the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, <clears throat> How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion. Okay. Covered them how? That, that's the end of the, the kind of the, 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 the phrase. You would expect to see like a period, you know, a, a complete thought. But Jeremiah doesn't do that. And, and so we're left thinking, well, how does he cover us? With hugs and kisses? And then you go to the next line. Because you have to find out how the Lord has covered Israel. And it says, with a cloud in his anger. Or we could say, look at verse 2. Or the, the, even, sorry, the second part of verse 1. Where it says, he has cast from heaven to earth. And in our minds, we could think about, you know, how uh, the, the stars, right, have been cast from heaven. Or, or uh, we could think of, of, of the fall of, of Satan or, or, or something like that. But we, we don't know unless we keep reading. And then when we read, it's devastating. Because what's been cast from heaven to earth is the glory of Israel. And so as we, as we get into Lamentations 2 we see that this suffering is complete and it's like a train wreck that we can't look away from. Jeremiah won't let us. And he gives us another circuit of this difficulty. And it's a bit like 
we're joining with Job sitting in the ash heap, right? As, as the lamenter describes all that's going on, we're watching, maybe we're joining with the lament, but it's as though we're sitting in the ash heap, feeling the misery of God's people. And it's here that we see that the Lord has the one that the lamenter says has done it. As we think about that, as we wrestle with that this morning, it's distressing. But we also see how the lamenter in in chapter 2 directs the people to call to the Lord. So the Lord is not just the one who brings about the destruction of the nation, and we'll look at why he does that. But Lamentations 2 also directs the people to call out to the Lord so that he might deliver them. As we reflect on Lamentations 2, particularly in light of the culture, we need to do much the same. We need to recognize that what comes to pass comes to pass because of the Lord's great design for his glory, one, and two, we need to look to the Lord as the only one who can save us, the only one who can deliver us. Now, as we, we think about this, I've, I've said several times, you know, the Lord has done it. Um, if, if we look through the first chunk of Lamentations, you know, the first eight verses or so, there's one subject. And I don't mean that there's one uh, topic. I mean that as you go from verse to verse, that there's one primary actor or agent. And that's the Lord. Uh, you know, we, we've already read that he's covered the daughter of Zion with his anger. He, he's cast... You know, the glory of Israel from heaven to earth. The Lord is the one who is working. Now, how is he working? Right? He's working to destroy the nation. And, and we could think about that, and we, we, we remember that this Lord who is destroying the nation is the same Lord who redeemed Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. He's the same Lord who delivered and established the people in the midst of wicked nations. This is the great I am. And he's rejecting the nation, and as a result, they're utterly forsaken. Now, we know that it's because of the sins of the people. We see that in chapter 1. We'll, we'll see that throughout the book. But, you know, and, and as we think about that, we, we also, we hope, we pray that the Lord is not being capricious, and he's not. But the people have rejected the Lord. They've utterly rejected the Lord. They've said, I don't believe in the Lord and I don't believe in his word. And so the Lord is at work destroying the nation. He destroys the structures. We see in, throughout verses 2, 5, 8, and 9 that the Lord destroys strongholds, the high places, uh, the physical buildings. He's stripping the nation of any sort of strength it might have. He's taking down all of its spires or, or, or its walls, its protections. Everything that the people might hold on to in time of distress, the Lord removes. Um, we see not just that, that we see the, the loss of all that is good and right uh, in, in, 
in chapter 2, it talks about how the Lord has slain all those that were beautiful, all those that were good, right? We understand that the Lord is causing the destruction of his people. For the people of God, this is the worst possible news. We see its effect in verse 5 when it says, when, when the lamenter says that in Judah, the Lord has multiplied moaning in mourning. And as we kind of look at the horizon of evangelicalism, as, as we look at the horizon of the church in the United States, Lamentations 2 is about as alien a passage of Scripture as we can find. What do I mean by that? As we look at the, the wider church, as we look at the way in which we come together and worship the Lord, we don't sing songs like this. Um, as, we, as we think about uh, the way in which um, we engage with one another, right? Sometimes we think about it as the, the, uh, um, the obligations of a Sunday morning, where, you know, in between Sunday school and, and the sanctuary, I say, how are you doing? And you say, great, I'm fine. Without, you know, and, and I'm, I'm asking how are you doing without any real expectation that you're going to answer in a real way. And you say, oh, I'm fine, without any sort of thought as to how your week went or how indeed you are. And we recognize, right, that the, the space of the narthex between the, fel- the, the Sunday school hour and the sanctuary hour, the, the worship hour, is not the best time to have a conversation, uh, particularly deep complex conversations about the, the, the good things and bad things that have happened in our lives, right? But what we certainly recognize is that Lamentations 2, as a, as, a, as a topic, doesn't usually come up in our discourse. Now, my purpose here is not to, to say, you know, you really should be intentional about asking me how I am. I mean, we should all be better at that. But that, that's not the, the purpose of, of the morning, the purpose that I have in saying that is just to, to the pain and sorrow and suffering that we see in Lamentations 2 is not present publicly in any part of our gatherings as a wider church. Not, not Lighty's church, but the wider church. It's just not present. And as we wrestle with the, the reality that the Lord is causing the destruction of the nation, we have to wrestle with why. And actually, Gary and I didn't work this out, but, but he hit upon it this morning when he talked about the Lord being a jealous God. Listen to how he says it in Isaiah 42. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images, right? Now, I think a helpful way to understand this is an illustration that John Piper used, or that I first heard from John Piper years ago, and that is to think of magnification. There's two ways to magnify something. The first is a microscope, right, where you're usually in the lab, sitting at the lab bench, looking in at a germ or some other teeny tiny little organism, and the microscope makes it look bigger so you can see what's going on. The other type of magnification is that of a telescope, where you have something that is immense, gargantuan, right? 
And as we look, that thing that is gargantuan is so far in the distance for whatever reason that, that it looks small, but the telescope makes it look closer to how it really is. Right? When we magnify God, when we praise the Lord, it's like a telescope. Well, we're making him appear more like he really is. When we sing of his greatness, when we sing of his wonder, when we sing of, of the blessings that he has poured out upon us in Christ, we're, we're making the Lord appear closer to how he is, particularly to those who don't, do not know. But we see that there's another risk in our lives. That is the other kind of magnification where we take something small and inconsequential, something that's created, something that's not the Lord, and we make it larger than it should be, right? That's what the Lord will not tolerate. Why? He's a jealous God. But, but why is he a jealous God? What, what? There's a couple of reasons. First and foremost, it is for your good. And, and we'll return to this. But the Lord chastens those he loves and so he contends with us for our good but the second reason is that God cannot be God if he does not contend for his glory just think about this for a minute as we think about the Old Testament as we, as we look through uh, the, the rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall of Israel, we see that they worship other gods. Sometimes they make gods and worship them. Other times they make gods and say, this is the Lord who redeemed us from Egypt, right? That's, that was Aaron's uh, um, manufacturing process. Right, where, where they took the gold from the people and you know, Moses comes down off of the hill, off of the mountain from, from visiting with the Lord and, and Aaron has the gall to say, well, we just kind of put the gold in and this calf is what popped out. And so we've said, behold, your God. What, is, what are the people doing there? They've taken something created, something small. They've magnified it as though it were larger than it is, more glorious than it is. And they're actually giving to this created thing the glory of God. The Lord will not let that happen. He can't let that happen. If he does, he's no longer God. And so the Lord responds... By saying no. And, and to be clear, it's not as though the Lord starts the process of saying no by destroying the nation. He chastens his people just as he chastens us. He, he, he reminds them in small ways that the direction they're going in is not right and they need to repent. Hebrews 12 uh, describes this sort of uh, action of the Lord in, in the language of families and parenting. Um, I'm guessing that many of you have experienced both the, the receiving end of the discipline of a parent and the giving end of the discipline as a parent to your children. And, you know, I, I think about the way in which the, the Nowling household ran when I was a kid 
And as uh, my, my parents would ask us to do things and my brother and I would you know, be sinful children and say, no, we're not going to do that. And, and, and punishment would come, we, we would begin to complain. And usually my dad would say, you know, there's an easy way to do this and there's a hard way to do this. You can choose. He said, you know, I would prefer you do the easy way. But, you know, like, for instance, you're going to clean your room. And you don't clean your room, and you don't clean your room, and you don't clean your room, and then you don't get to go to the ball game. But guess what? You still have to clean your room. And you don't clean your room, and you don't clean your room, and you don't clean your room, and then, and then you can't have friends over, or you can't go to somebody else's house, but you still have to clean your room. And at the end of the day, the labor is still the same, clean your room, but we see that the Lord, or the, the parent, chastens us to help us understand what we're to do. The Lord does the same for his people. They've utterly rejected it. They've utterly forsaken the Lord. They've said they want nothing to do with him. They want to be like the nations surrounding them. And so in Lamentations 2, particularly in this first half, you see that the Lord finally responds by destroying the nation. Now, again, we know that there are uh, believing individuals, you know, whether it's Jeremiah or, or Daniel. You know, there are people that are around that are continuing to follow the Lord that are being chastened in the same way, but that the Lord has rejected the people because the people have rejected the Lord. One of the ways in which this is worked out in Lamentations 2 is horrendous, but we see it present in our day now. And that's the way in which the children suffer. Now, in, in, in Lamentations 2, it's, it's easy to, to understand why the lamenter would talk about it, right? Uh, you know, if, the, if a city is being destroyed... Um, if, if a city is, is being swept away, obviously children are going to suffer greatly. They can't take care of themselves. Um, they, they can't feed themselves. They, they can't clothe themselves. They, they can't get the things that they need, and so they suffer. And we see how this is described in verses 11 and 12. Listen as I, I read it again. It says, my, my eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, they say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. But it gets worse. As bad as that is, it gets worse. Because we go down to verses 19 and 20, and it says this, Arise, Cry aloud in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hand to him for the life of your little ones who are faint because of hunger at the head of every street. Same notion, but then it says this. See, O Lord, and look, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring? The little ones who were born healthy. How does that happen? Right? There is, there is little that, that is 
more antithetical to, to Christian living than that. What do we see? Not f- parents who, who give of their time, effort, energy, lives to protect and establish their children, but parents who sacrifice their children that they might live or that they might find success or that they might exist in the way that they see fit. As I think about that, I can't help but think at the end of this 40 days of life period that we have right now, 40 days of praying for for life, of abortion and the stain that it is on our land. And before we go further, I'll just say this. If, if you're hearing from people around you or the wider culture that, that abortion is, well, you know, it's complicated. It's, it's, it's got difficulties or it's not so cut and dry. We need to understand that our, our culture is very good at continuing to talk and make hurdles around clear thought. And when our society speaks about a, the right of a mother to choose whether the lump of cells growing within her body is, is living or not or can be terminated or not, we need to remember that that is a life made in the image of God. How do we understand where we are now? I actually think Psalm 9 is helpful. Uh, we read some selected verses, and, and Psalm 9 is, is a, a psalm of nearly overwhelming praise. But it's also a, verse, or a, a psalm that has affliction in it. Uh, it's a psalm where, where David, though, though he's celebrating what the Lord has done, he, he, he recognizes that he's in a little bit of trouble. And in Psalm 9, 15 and 16, it says this, The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. Right? The the picture here is that David is in trouble and he's called on the Lord to deliver him. And then he expresses this confidence that the Lord is going to deliver him by the hand of his enemies. Right? The, the very thing that they meant to hurt Israel with is going to be used against them. Okay? Um, this sort of picture is used throughout the scriptures. If you're, you're one prominent example I think of is, is Haman the Agagite. Right? Haman was the enemy of the Jews in Esther, in the book of Esther, and, and he was going to have Mordecai hanged for insubordination. Well, as the story unfolds, you know, Mordecai's innocent. Haman is the enemy of God's people. And in the fullness of time, as the Lord dispenses justice, what happens? Haman is hanged on the gallows he built for Mordecai. The trap he set for God's people is used against him. That's what Psalm 9 has David expecting for the enemies of God's people. As we think of this land in which we live, as we think of of, of abortion in particular, I think it is imperative that we recognize that the individual rights that we see as the foundation of our society, the, the, the root of our society, find in abortion a flowering fruit in the absence of the Lord. 
What do I mean? We prize individual liberty. We prize individual rights. And that's a good thing. But when the Lord is not present, then it means that man gets to do what he wants without restriction. And the cost for our nation is millions of lives. Only the Lord would know the full impact. As we reflect on the horror of abortion, as we reflect on some of the horror of what we see in Lamentations, we need to pray. We need to pray for our land. We need to pray in praise of, of Texas and the legislation that has been passed that's restricting abortion. We need to pray in praise for the Supreme Court that's not struck down the law. And we need to pray for the legal proceedings that are sure to follow that perhaps the Lord would have mercy on our land and restrict this wickedness that's present in us, present among us. May we also, as individuals, understand that all are made in the image of God and may we reach out to those in love that might be considering an abortion. Direct them to to good and right resources like the Pregnancy Resource Center of North Penn. Uh, People who can help and resources that, that, that can help to choose life. May we also reach out to those in our spheres of influence who have fallen victim to the thinking of the world in this way. Again, we're, you know, we need to do so in love. But we, we, we recognize that in this, we might be an instrument in the chastening of somebody else's life. And in the, the, an instrument to say, hey, that's not right. You need to come back this way and follow the Lord. Celebrate life. Understand that this is wrong. It's an opportunity for us, you know, as it says on many of our Bible studies, iron sharpening iron, right? We can sharpen one another and guide and direct back to the Lord. As we reflect on the horrors of the nation as it falls apart, we need to pray that the Lord would be merciful to us, that this would not happen to us. And we need to seek to communicate that hope that we have in the Lord to others around us. Now, as Lamentations chapter 2 ends, um, we see that the lamenter, turn, or he, he calls on the people to pray to the Lord. And, it, and here, it's a recognition that yes, this destruction is coming from the Lord, but it's also the Lord who is the only one who can save them. It's the Lord is the only one who can deliver them. Now, we don't see the deliverance yet in, in Lamentations 2, you know, the way that we maybe would have seen it in Psalm 9. Um, it's interesting, you know, I think about Psalm 9 as a, as a child, as I would have read it, you know, the, David praises the Lord, and then he says there are people that are, uh, you know, harming him or afflicting him, and then he praises the Lord again. And as a child, I would have thought that that would have meant, well, maybe something happened like in between, you know, verse 13 and verse 20 that made David change his mind. Like he was riding on the battlefield, like he's, you know, praising the Lord. And then as the battle's going against him, he's like, oh, Lord, help us. And then the battle immediately goes the other way. He says, oh, thank you, Lord, for that that we recognize as nonsense. But that, you know, as a kid, that's how I would have read it. 
Instead, what we recognize is that David in Psalm 9, you know, he, he, he's basically saying, the Lord has promised to save us. The Lord has never failed in any of his promises. So look to him with confidence. The lamenter in Lamentations 2, as he's coming to, this, to, to call the people to pray, he's saying, you know, he, he says, cry out aloud. And then the substance of that is to say, see, O Lord, and look. Look at our plight. And we would say, well, of course the Lord knows the plight. He's the one that caused it. But we recognize that the people are wayward and don't want the Lord. So in just praying to the Lord, they are returning to the Lord. Now, how do we see our way forward? How do we work through Lamentations 2? As we think about the Lord working to destroy the nation a wayward nation, as we recognize that in many ways our nation is a wayward nation that has rejected the Lord or, or certainly does not value life in a similar way that, that they do, what do we do? I think we look to the Lord. We say, Lord, help us, right? And, and we say, Lord, deliver us as a nation because we're, we're talking about a nation here. We also can think about this on an individual level as disaster or calamity comes to us as individuals. How do we respond to that? Well, I do think we do need to, as Hebrews, 11, or Hebrews 12 talks about, understand that the Lord does use calamity to chasten us or to, to reprove us or to, to drive us back to the Lord. And, and, and we think about how, how that might happen. And what we, we, we recognize is that the Lord is eager that we would follow him. The Lord is eager that we would glorify him. And so as difficult times come, we, we search ourselves and we say, Lord, how am I doing? How, how am I right or wrong in this moment. It, it, it's what we are about to do in our confession of sin, where we ask the Lord to search our hearts and, and to show us ways in which we're not living good and right. But then we also recognize that there are times which in the providence of God, he brings suffering into our lives when it is not because of a sin or a thing that we've done. And we then have to wonder, well, Lord, what are you, what are you doing there? How are we meant to respond there? And, and this is where I think Paul in, uh, in 2 Corinthians expresses it so well. And it's something we hinted at last, two weeks ago. And, and we repeat now is that we understand that when affliction comes, because we belong to the Lord, it is momentary in light. Might not feel like it, but it is. And we are now, and as long as we live, looking for our eternal home with the Lord, where we will live in inexpressible joy. So then what, what does suffering do? Or what does 
heartache do? Or what does difficulty do? Paul again is helpful. I think Romans 5 explains it well where, where he begins with tribulation, right? And goes to proven character or perseverance and then perseverance to proven character and, perf- uh, uh, and then ultimately to hope. And he says, hope does not disappoint. And before our minds run to kind of the Hallmark Christmas movies of, and, and hope and the mush that comes with it, we need to recognize that the scriptures show us the hope of the Lord in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even in the midst of distress, we have the Lord's promise to us through Paul that we will never be separated by the love of Christ. And when we're in the midst of the suffering, we look to the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeing the pain he entered into and knowing that there we are saved. As we live in this world, which is often in open rebellion to the Lordship of Christ, as we live in this culture that is, is in a moral freefall, as we may well experience the removal of the Lord's providential care upon this land, we need to cling to Christ. We, in many ways, can join the lamenter. We can lament for the fall of a nation. We can lament for the the growing evil, the wickedness that pervades the land and, and all aspects of our life, but we need to cling to Christ. We need to speak to our nation, our culture. We need to speak truth into the darkness that does not know who the Lord is. We need to speak of the Lord's righteous requirements, both when it's popular and when it's not. And in so doing, we need to cling to Christ. In all things, we need to cling to Christ who loves us and holds us secure. Amen.